to the coming of Jesus. Uh, we, we are adopting uh, the tradition that's you know, been a part of the saints' worship for centuries, where uh, you spend basically the, first, uh, the four Sundays prior to Christmas asking the Lord to prepare our hearts, uh, to, to help us focus on the significance of this season. Uh, this year's Advent series is just going to focus on why Jesus came. Uh, throughout the Gospel of John, there are some themes interwoven, and uh, that's what we're going to be doing is, is focusing in the Gospel of John to, to see the different times and places where Jesus would explain why he came. I mean, he, he literally uses that, that formula, I came so that, you know, and then he'll, he'll give an explanation. So um, we're going to be looking at John chapter 6, I want to invite you to turn there uh, to verses 35 through 42 where Jesus explains that he came to do the will of him who sent him. So let's stand in honor of God's word. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet, do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning, and thank you for giving us Jesus, for showing us your glory in the face of Christ. Would you help us to see your glory? Help us to understand why Jesus came. Help us to understand what it means for us uh, to not do our own will, but the will of him who sent us as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I'm going to give a lot of attention to, to verse 38, just as a, a heads up, you know, where, where Jesus says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, what does it mean that Jesus came down from heaven? What does it mean that, that he really was committed to doing his Father's will? Uh, and what does it mean uh, that we are not like Jesus, to just kind of live independently of God, doing our own thing rather than the will of him uh, who sent us. So, uh, so let's, let's talk about this claim that, that he's come down from heaven. Um, we can get used to that kind of language. If you've been in the church for any stretch of time, uh, you're sort of used to Jesus saying things like that. It doesn't strike you as odd at all, but maybe if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, you, you do hear that and you go, well, that's weird. <laughs> uh, 
I've come down from heaven. Um, that's not the kind of thing that people normally say. And the people that do say that, we get a little weirded out by. Um, but actually, this is um, uh, you know, one of those places where we hear about this, what's been called the mystery of godliness by, uh, by Paul. Uh, I want to read to you from 1 Timothy 3. It's one of, um, uh, theologians think this might be one of the earliest Christian hymns. Um, Christians have been singing uh, to Jesus for thousands of years. Um, and this is one of the earliest songs, perhaps, from 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, and Paul refers to that as the, the mystery of faith. Uh, great indeed is, is such a mystery. Who, who in the world can, can put on um, divinity, much less, you know, how would we imagine that God, uh, who is infinite, uh, would put on human finiteness, uh, that he was manifested in the flesh. Uh, that's a remarkable thing if you pause and consider for a second the incarnation, um, that, that there was a point in time where a man came and said, uh, I am God in the flesh, and people worshipped him. Uh, so, for instance, we've got records from the, the uh, second century uh, where one uh, uh, Roman official was writing a letter to the emperor Trajan at the time and recording how the Christians would meet on a fixed day before dawn and they would sing responsively a hymn to Christ or Christos. Uh, they, they didn't have the name quite accurate. Uh, they would sing a hymn to Christ as to a god, right? So... The Christians were gathering to worship Jesus, whom they identified as God. And maybe that hymn was Philippians 2. Maybe it was what Paul was quoting in, in um, 1 Timothy 3. But Philippians 2 talks about how uh, this, this, uh, that Jesus, even though he was God, he did not account quality, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And these, this is the mystery of faith, that God would come, among other things, and be, and be made into a human being, take our flesh upon himself, and tabernacle among us. Um, Michael Card, who's a Christian musician and theologian, uh, he says this, that the mysteries... The mysteries of faith in Christ are for everyone who claims to be in relationship with him. Uh, so we're, we're sort of talking about what exactly is, is, a, is, when the Bible uses the word mystery, what do we mean? Listen to what Michael Card says. That the basic truths of Christianity are mysteries. All the basics are mysteries. They are not understandable, not our ways, the virgin birth of Jesus, the Trinity, um, how those things work. Things like grace and, and prayer and the union of the believer with Christ, the cross, and perhaps most mysterious and key to them all, 
is the incarnation, right? So, so just imagine for a second, you're, you're, you're surrounded by a bunch of your friends and, and Jesus, and you're, you're, you're 2,000 years ago, and, and Jesus is among you, and he says that I have come down from heaven. What are you going to make of somebody who says such a thing? You know, don't, don't get too used to that. Let it surprise you again. But here's, a, here's a man, just like you and me, uh, we wouldn't have considered him to be, you know, he wasn't glowing, he didn't have the halo over his head like the paintings depict him. He just looked like a human being. And he's claiming that he's come down from heaven. I, you know, is that a mystery or is that crazy? Well, he goes on to explain in verse 38 that I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And, and he says early in verse 35 that, that he's the bread of life, that whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He combines the expression coming down from heaven and the bread of life earlier in verse 33. If you've got John chapter 6 open, you can look at verse 33, where Jesus says that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. You know, just mixing those two metaphors together. Um, you know, which, which is crazier, um, to say that I'm the, the bread of life or to say that I've come down from heaven? You know, uh, it's, it should shock your ears to hear somebody say that. And either he's telling the truth or he's not. Um, you know, if, if he's not, then you ought to lump him together with people like uh, Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda from Mexico, um, who, when he was younger, uh, says that angels told him that he was the one the world was expecting. Um, and, you know, he went around claiming to be God, and he had his thousands of followers, established his own church, claimed to be God, claimed to be immortal, you know, that he would never die. Uh, unfortunately for him, he contracted cirrhosis of the liver and, well, you know, did pass away, so kind of a problem if you're claiming to be immortal when you get cirrhosis. Um, and then there's uh, Arafin Muhammad. Uh, this, this fellow was from Malaysia. And when he was young, he says that he had a vision where angels told him that, that he was God. Uh, actually, he went around claiming to be the king of the sky. It's a very cool title, king of the sky. And that um, his followers were to call him the king of the sky, and they were part of his uh, sky kingdom. And that as the king of the sky over his sky kingdom, he was, uh, again, the one that the world was expecting, and, and that he was the incarnation of Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha and Shiva and every other, you know, world religion. He just kind of hedged all bets and said, you know, yeah, if, if there's a figurehead out there, I'm, I'm the the incarnate, you know, reincarnation of that person. Um, so we don't give these people, there's, there's thousands more like them, uh, we don't give them a second thought. Why would anybody give Jesus a second thought? Saying that he's come down from heaven, saying that he's, he's the bread of life. Um, well, I, you know, you'd have to look for proof. You'd have to look for proof. And the fruit would have to be in, you know, the results of his life and even the results of his death that we'll, we'll talk about here in a minute. But just want you to recognize that's a remarkable claim. 
don't lose that in the, the, the static of familiarity. Uh, and he, he went on to say that he's come to do the will of him who sent me. I've come from heaven, and I've got a particular mission to do the will of him who sent me. Why did Jesus come down from heaven? Well, to do his Father's will. And now we have to pause and ask, well, what was the will of his Father? I've come down from heaven to do my Father's will, and here's what the Father has, has willed for me. Here's what he wants me to do. Here's what he wants for me. Here's what he, what he wants for me to do. Four things that you see in this passage. One is to give, to give a, a group of people, believers or followers to, to the Son, uh, to lose nothing of all that the Father has given him. Uh, third thing is to raise, instead to raise it up on the last day, rather than lose it, raise it up. And then lastly, to grant eternal life to everyone who believes. Quick rundown of those things. In verse 37, you see that it's the will of the Father to give to the Son a, a, a group of people, some followers, uh, worshipers, and that uh, this is this really bold declaration. Not, it's not a hope, it's not a wish, it's not just a, gee, you know, maybe this will work out, maybe it won't, but, but look at Jesus' language in verse 37, you know, it's It's fact. All that the Father gives me will come to me. It's, it's, it's factual and it's declarative. And it's one of these places where, as D.A. Carson says, that Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is frankly predestinarian. Um, you know, we just got done doing our whole series on the Protestant Reformation or Transformation and looking at the the mystery of God's sovereign will, you know, that there really is predestination and election in the Bible. And at the same time, God affirms our, um, our activity and our responsibility and our response to his invitation. And both are true and both are biblical. And how, how they exactly work out together is, is frankly above us and beyond us. It's a mystery. But this is one of those places where Jesus is declaring something about what he knows to be the end of his mission. This will take place and that there is a group of people that the Father is going to give to me and they will come to me. They will be my bride. They will be my body. They will be my people. They will be my possession. They will be my inheritance. And that's part of the comfort and the assurance that, that you and I have to know that through faith in Christ, you and I can become a part of that community. It's, that's the miracle that is the result of Christ's coming. That we who are following our noses and lost and you know, unrepentant can actually experience the grace of forgiveness and renewal and rebirth into becoming Christ's people. Uh, so that's the first thing that you see is the will of the Father. He really has a plan to give a people to his Son. And that secondly, in verse 39, Jesus makes it very clear that the will of him who sent me is that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That he's not going to, to fail in this mission. Verse 37 says it in a different way, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
Um, this isn't, I'm not going to fail. Nobody's going to get lost along the way. It's not like, you know, you've got the tour groups going through Disney World and the flags and the, you know, tour guides and, you know, come along, kids. You know, don't, don't, don't lose your guide. Jesus is not going to lose anybody. Um, when Jesus says that in verse 37, that whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Um, when you hear those words, do you think that what Jesus means <clears throat> is that he's sort of at the gate of, of the, he's at the pearly gates and whoever uh, sort of wanders up to the pearly gates and wants to come in is, is, is Jesus saying, I'm, I'm not a bad guy, I'm not a bad bailiff and I, I won't, you know, or who's, who's the guy that stands out in front of the bar, the bouncer, you know? Hey, if you can't get past the velvet rope, too bad. Um, is Jesus saying, I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna let everybody in who wants to come in? Or is he saying that everybody who's, who's brought in, everybody who the Father gives to him, is secure and safe, and I will never let them wander out of my presence. I will never let them be lost. I will keep such a protective eye on them that they can never fall away. Which is it? Is it this indiscriminate welcome? to all who believe? Or is it the, the watchful, protective care over the one who keeps us? Well, maybe it can be both. I want to expand your view of what Jesus is doing as the one who keeps us and the one who, who is watching over us. Uh, you know, one of the uh, passages we were looking at when we were exalting in the fact that God really does save us completely is Jesus' role as the one who presents us to the Father. In Jude 24, we, I don't know if you remember this passage, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with, with great joy. Uh, remember that Jesus himself is going to stand before his father and give him an account of his mission. And Jesus won't fail. And Jesus isn't going to, going to you know, hold his hat in his hand and go, well, I brought most, most, most of the people that you, you had for me. I, I brought most of the sheep, but you know, I, I did my best, but some of the sheep, they got away. You know, the wolves came in, and I, just, I, I did my best, but I wasn't able to protect all of them. Is that, can you imagine Jesus coming up with that kind of, of excuse, that's not going to happen because Jesus is able to keep us and he is the one who will by no means turn us away. He won't cast us out. He won't let anyone be lost and that's part of our assurance and part of the glory of Jesus' power as the one who saves us completely. So it's the will of the Father Jesus wouldn't lose any of the people that his father gives to him. And then you look at the third thing that the father wills uh, for Jesus is in verse 39 again, the very end of that verse, that he would lose nothing of all that he has been given, but raise it up on the last day that, that he will raise up these people on the last day for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus repeats that twice. You kind of want to perk up your ears when Jesus repeats himself. 
It's important. He's going to raise up the people that God the Father presents to him and gives to him. So Jesus is telling us that our destiny, the the destiny of all of the sheep of the good shepherd is to be raised up by him. So there's a couple of senses in which this is true. When you hear that you will be raised up, what do you immediately think of? Resurrection? Probably. You look at John chapter 5 where Jesus says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And so a part of that promise is dealing with when, when Christ returns and there's the, the resurrection and that those who know the Son are going to be raised to glory and they will uh, ascend with him and those who do not know the Son uh, will be raised, but they will be raised uh, to shame forever. Uh, never having their sins taken away and constantly bearing the reminder and the guilt and the condemnation of not repenting and of not seeking forgiveness. So part of the glory of the resurrection is that we will put on new bodies, but we will be free of our sin, we will be free of our shame, we will be free of all the stuff that makes us feel like we're failures. But that's not the only sense in which Jesus is saying, I will raise him up on the last day. It's not just so that we get glorified bodies and that we are finally free from the presence of sin forever. There's another sense in which we will be raised up. Another sense in which we will be raised up that, that parallels and, and ex, um, it's, it's really an articulation of how we are united to Jesus because Jesus, just as he was resurrected, will be resurrected, but also Jesus, just as Jesus ascended to glory, and was, was raised up in the sense that he was exalted, you and I will be exalted as well. That's a crazy thought. You're going to be exalted. Not, not just resurrected, but exalted. So think about this. What, 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 what do we raise up um, in our day-to-day life? Or maybe even in, especially at special occasions. What do we lift up? I mean, physically, what do you lift up? And, and why do you lift it up? We see people um, raising up trophies. You know, we're the champions. And after all that work and uh, all of that effort, uh, and, you know, it was a great final or whatever. It was a tough game, and, you know, but, but there was a winner, and they're raising up their trophy. Uh, or maybe, maybe you lift a glass, and, and you're toasting, you know, the, the bride and the groom. Or, or you're, you're toasting... Uh, the person who's being honored at some dinner or whatever. You know, we had a 70th birthday party for John Pearson, and we're giving thanks for, for our friend. Uh, you know, those kinds of things where you've got a special occasion, or uh, you're the Lion King and you're raising up Simba. I mean, you're just, what, what do we raise up? We raise up the things that are important to us. And that act of raising, you know, the trophy or the glass or the baby is an expression of exaltation. You and I are literally going to be raised up in the sense that we're going to be exalted just like Jesus. God is thrilled to death with his son, rejoices in the son, loves the son. Now, 
and through the mystery of our union with Jesus, God is thrilled to death with you. He loves you. Your destiny is to be exalted with Jesus and to be the object of the Father's affection for an eternity. And God is infinitely happy with you. That's part of the joy of heaven. If we have some concept and some understanding and expectation that heaven is a happy place, part of that happiness is God's happiness with his people because of our union with Jesus. Uh, listen to how uh, a saint, you know, who's hundreds of years before us put this. His name is Henry Skugel. And he wrote that nothing is more powerful to engage our affection than to find that we are beloved. To have the love of one who is altogether lovely. To know that the glorious majesty of heaven have any regard unto us. How must it astonish and delight us. How must it overcome our spirits and melt our hearts and put our whole soul into a flame? Are you convinced that God loves you, that he's happy with you, and that he exalts over you, and that you will spend an eternity being rejoiced over? Somebody who knows that they're loved that tends to change their orientation toward life. It sort of changes their perspective of the, the landscape. It moves from gloom and shadows and black and white and sepia to technicolor. It moves from a little fuzzy box, you know, uh, to 3D, 4K, ultravision, whatever. I don't know kind of what your experience of Jesus is and what your walk with the Lord is lately, but I know that when I'm in a rut, it probably has a lot to do with the fact that I'm forgetting or I'm not experiencing or I'm not living out of the reality that God really loves me. And I'm focused on how this person doesn't love me or this person's upset with me or these circumstances are bad and so on and so on and I'm just forgetting the music forgetting the love song of the gospel. Because the fourth thing that, that Jesus is explaining about the will of the Father is it's his will to grant eternal life to everyone who believes. You see that in verse 40. That this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Early in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So, you know, given a couple of perspectives on what does it mean to believe in Jesus? That whoever looks to the Son, believes in him, should have eternal life. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They shall not hunger. Well, now we're getting to kind of, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? How do I enter into that experience that reality of being included among the people that the Father gives to Jesus. What is it? How, how can I know the happiness of the Father with me? How can I know that God loves me? And here Jesus is explaining that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. You'll never hunger, you'll never thirst. 
Believe in what? Specifically, look at, look at the text, verse 40, it's to believe in him, believe in a person. Not, not just simply uh, a list of doctrines, not just simply, you know, what the kind of the, the bullet points of your church, your denomination are, but we're, we're talking about believing in a person, to have a relationship with somebody, rather than just a list of facts or religious, you know, data that, that sort of you grew up with. So, Get that out of your head. You, you need to know the data, of course. That's important. But, but the data itself isn't enough. You need to believe in a person, to believe in Jesus, to believe in his words, to believe in his works, to believe in his worth. Um, that, yes, there's the words of Jesus. So when he says things like, I am the bread of life, you believe him. No, he's not a crazy man. He's, he's not an idiot, you know, in, you know, shooting off on, online or in person and gathering a bunch of deluded followers, you know, who are going to then go do crazy things maybe. Or, you know, it, those, those stories turn dark inevitably. But this is one who, who would say the, 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 the things that are in the same category of potentially crazy, but he actually lived it out. And he really was the bread of life. So when he says he's the bread of life, he's actually giving us something really practical, that Jesus didn't come just giving us a bunch of, of um, uh, mystical sayings. He didn't just come with his, uh, his miracle show, you know, the, the, like your neighbor who's trying to outdo you with your Christmas lights and inflatables. Um, he's, he's not just trying to impress us, but he's actually coming and saying, I'm here to feed you. I'm here to bless you. I'm here to practically make a difference in your life, just like bread makes a difference in our lives. So do we believe his word? and his teachings? And do we say amen to that? And do we live our lives in accordance with the, the consistency of the kingdom that he demonstrates through what he taught, of course, his words? But then believing in Jesus means believing in his works. That yes, the things that he did were true. He really did come down from heaven. It wasn't him making it up. It wasn't just an exaggeration. Uh, it wasn't just part of his his legend, it was actually true. He is the man from heaven, come to tell us what's on the other side, unlike what anybody else has ever been able to do. That he really did that, and he went back to heaven, and he's there now, and he's going to return and bring the heavens and the earths together again. So believing in his words, believing in his work, his ultimate work, of course, was when he gave himself on a cross, to believe in him, that Jesus was my substitute for my sins. To believe that he would willingly go to a cross on my behalf and on your behalf and lay down his life so that all who have faith in him, in him, could have our sins taken away. So that we could have God's approval and smile again. So that we could be forgiven and turn from doing our own will to doing the will of him who sent us because he's taken our sins away. And then to know his worth, his words, his works, his worth. I mean, that Jesus is not just the bread of life, he is life itself. He's, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's not the king of the sky, whatever weird you know, title some, somebody adopts from himself. He's the real deal. The king of kings and the lord of lords. And and that he's worth our worship, and he's worth our, our, our following, and he's worth our love and our hearts and our goals and all the things that we're trying to get life from. Jesus 
is the fulfillment of that. So, you know, there's a sense in which Jesus has in mind the prophets, in particular Isaiah 55, where Isaiah says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And Isaiah kind of lays it out. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. So that's the will of the Father, that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. And you and I can have eternal life through faith in Jesus, in a person, in his words, in his works, in his worth. And lastly, Jesus said something about coming, not to do his own will, right, but to do the will of him who sent him. And that's a strange statement. I mean, of course Jesus isn't going to do his own will. Can you imagine Jesus sinning, kind of living independently of his father? It would seem completely incompatible with with who Jesus is, right? I wish it seemed more incompatible for who we are. We can't imagine Jesus doing anything apart from the will of his Father, but you and I are doing that all the time. Um, but, but let me ask you, will you come? If you haven't come to, to, to receive Jesus yet, maybe you've been believing the data or maybe you've been kind of doing the church thing for a while but never really believed in Jesus or maybe you're still kind of trying to figure Jesus out, now's the time to come. God is calling you to align your will with the Father's will. To not do your own will anymore. To not live independently of God. In verse 36, Jesus said, you, I have said that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So, you know, have you seen Jesus to a degree in which you can believe in him? Or, or maybe the Jesus you've seen all these years is the one, the caricature Jesus that, the, that you know, culture makes up, or that even certain churches make up, where, you know, Jesus is very stern and sort of, you know, incompassionate. Very, very legalistic, or maybe the Jesus you believed in or heard about in churches was sort of like just Mr. Rogers, just super nice, but really not worth our worship, not worth laying down your life for. Verse 41, you know, there's some grumbling about Jesus because he said, I am a bread that came down from heaven. Well, you know, you've got to decide, is Jesus a fairy tale or is he just sort of this religious figurehead, you know, not really unlike any other religious figurehead, or is he just sort of this legend that people have um, expanded upon? When he says he's the bread of life, that's important. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said that a man's physical hunger does not prove that he will get any bread. He may die of starvation on a raft in the Atlantic, just, you know, for example. But surely a man's hunger does prove that he comes of a race which repairs its body by eating and inhabits a world where eatable substances exist, right? I mean, that makes sense. In the same way, though I do not believe, I wish I did, I, I, I don't believe that my desire for paradise proves that I shall enjoy it. But I think it is a pretty good indication 
that such a thing exists, and that some men will, some people will, right? Does that make sense? Just because we are, we are hungry doesn't mean that we'll necessarily get the bread, but it certainly indicates that such a thing exists. So when Jesus says he's the bread of life, you know, we hunger for something trans, transformative. We hunger for something that's beyond us. Another place, you know, um, in a book called Mere Christianity, Lewis puts it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. So will you come to the one who says, I will satisfy your hunger and I will make sense of all of the craziness in your life and I will bring peace to your soul and I will show you the happiness of your father. You can come to him. And if you have come to him, then the next question is, will will you go? If you haven't come to him yet, come to him. And then if you have come to him, will you go as he has sent you? Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me. You know, Jesus is aware that he's been sent. Well, later on in John's gospel, Jesus says this. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You and I are not here to do our own will, but the will of him who sent us. You and I are commissioned. You and I are being sent as disciples and as ambassadors uh, for Jesus. And it's our role to go to this world, to go to our neighbors and to go to the nations and show them and tell them about the bread of life. To tell them about the one who came from heaven. And to tell them about how you and I are actually a part of, of that heavenly kingdom ourselves. That even though we've not yet been there, we belong there. We are citizens of that country, in addition to being you know, citizens of this country. We have a dual citizenship and a, a new inheritance and a new destiny because of what Jesus has done for us. And it's our commission, we have been sent, to go and tell people about that reality in our lives. And that means bringing the blessings of our new home in heaven to bear on earth as it is in heaven, to bless our neighbors and to live a life that is going to to bring the goodness of God to bear on those around us, to let them taste and see that the Lord is good. And it is our mission, we have been sent to bless our neighbors and to share with them, not just in acts of kindness, but with our words, the reality and the truth of who Jesus is, to invite them to come to him, invite them to church, invite them into this colony of the kingdom and to experience the goodness of the gospel, you know, in corporate worship and in fellowship and in the ministries of this church. So listen, folks, Advent's a great time to invite people to church. You haven't done that in a while. Bring them to the Christmas dinner. Bring them to any of the Advents. Bring them to your home group party. Show them the life of the kingdom. It's not perfect, you know, and if they hang around with us long enough, they'll start to go, I don't know about these people, but, you know, that's going to be true of any church. But we can show them Jesus, and we can show them our repentance, and we can show them the one who is our bread. Lewis, let me wrap up by one more thought by Lewis. He says, I must keep alive in myself 
the desire for my true country, which I shall not uh, find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that country and to help others do the same. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you for his words, his works, his worth. Thank you for showing us the bread of life who came down from heaven to lift us up to heaven. Not only to be resurrected when our lives are ended, but to know that you exalt over us. And that you are happy with your people. And that our sins are forgiven and that you smile over your children and that we can experience the joy of heaven even now. We do pray that you would show us what it means to not simply live independent of you, but instead to adopt new lives lived in conformity with your kingdom and to to make our will your will, uh, to seek your glory and to please you with how we live our lives and the words that we speak and the things that we do. Lord, we pray that you would transform us and change us through the reality of Christmas. We thank you for our, um, the people of Tabernacle, and we pray in particular for several of our families this morning. We pray for David and